Thanks for listening to the Mercy Church Podcast. If you're in the area, we want to invite you to join us the last weekend in March as we celebrate Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Good Friday services will be at 6 p.m. on Friday evening. And then on Sunday morning, we invite you to join us for a time of worship, a message, and baptisms. Bring your friends, your family, and if you feel so led, invite your coworker, cashier, or barista to join you. Services will be held at regular service times at all campuses. To learn more, visit mercycharlotte.com slash events. Again, that's mercycharlotte.com slash events. Hey, good morning, Mercy Church. Hey, I want to say a good morning to our Providence Road campus. Uh, My family attends there. We love you guys. Uh, But man, we had to be here uh, so that we could all together celebrate something we've been praying for in some sense for about five years, uh, that the Lord would allow us to open a campus of Mercy Church and be a part of a ministry up here in the northeast area of the city. So, Providence Road family, I want you to join us here at Mercy Northeast and celebrate our grand opening of Mercy Northeast. Yeah, it's here. Man, y'all, our vision as a church is to see a gospel awakening come to Charlotte that is carried to the ends of the earth. It's been our vision since day one, six years ago, when we launched in a senior citizen center down in Matthews. Today represents a significant step that the Lord is allowing us to take and seeing that vision become a reality. Y'all, we believe that awakening's going to happen not just when churches add people. They should. We should, because if we are going and proclaiming the gospel, we want to see people come from death to life and join the church and see how God has wired them up for his glory and to take the gospel to others. Yes, churches should add people, but awakening happens when churches also start to reproduce themselves throughout their community, right? Start to multiply themselves so that there is a healthy gospel-centered church within 10 minutes, five minutes, within just close distance to everybody. And for us, we're asking the Lord to help us do that, and we're trying to get wired up to do that in a couple of ways. Sometimes it's training up and sending out churches. Uh, And that's, y'all, we are trying to become that kind of a church, a church that is built to send. And by God's, to send, S-E-N-D, not S-I-N, okay? It's important that my southern accent doesn't mess that up for us this morning. But that's what we're trying to become, and I believe in church planting like crazy, not surprising. Planted a church six years ago, right? I believe in it so much. That's why we send well over 10% of our budget goes right back out to church planting efforts, both here in Charlotte and around the world. It's why in just six years, you have sent out members of our church to plant churches in Charlotte in LA, in Brooklyn, in Nashville, overseas, in Germany, in Austria, um, in where else? South Asia as well, right? In Kenya. I mean, we are a sending church and I love it. It's why we're doing this Advent uh, tithing challenge, this giving challenge to encourage you to give financially of your resources to the ministry here because, man, we want to see the gospel go forward. A third of everything we give in Advent is going to go out, going to go out to international missions and church planting, it's why we're so excited to send one of our best next year, Alan Warohio, to go plant a church. That's right. Not Mercy Nairobi. That's why we're doing it. That's why we're doing it, y'all. And then another strategy that we're trying out to help Mercy become a multiplying church is today. 
opening Mercy Northeast as a campus of Mercy Church. One church now gathering for worship in two locations in our city. This a concept is not new with us, but I want you to hear. I felt like today I just wanted to remind us before we jump into our text of the, the why, the, the why and the how for us. Our two campuses here in at Providence Road represent areas where Mercy members live and work and have community. Uh, and especially here in Northeast, a lot of y'all have been driving like 40 minutes to go to church, which might be okay for you. I get it. You believe a church alive is worth the drive, all right? I've, heard, I've seen the hashtag. I get it. But for many of your neighbors, friends, colleagues, etc., they're not going to make that trip, right? Planting a campus of our church where our people already are allows you to engage your neighbors and friends so much easier. We also believe this helps us stay relatively small uh, as a church so that we can know and care for one another. So if we do grow, if the Lord does let us reach people, we can still be a church family together doing it this way. Uh, And so I hope that happens for us as we continue to grow and reach people as a church. By the way, uh, for you guys, both campuses right after service, we're having something called Starting Point, which is where we go into more detail about who we are and why we do these things. It's like a 15-minute orientation right after service that I encourage you to stick around for. Y'all, this strategy creates opportunities for us to plant churches because we're training up future church planters. Because if we're going to plant churches, we got to be a church planting and a church training culture. we got to train pastors. I'm even trying to see my role through this lens. I preach for Mercy Church. This is my like life calling, and I do it about 60% of the time here. I'm the lead pastor, this is my teaching, the teaching ministry I'm responsible for, and I believe the pulpit drives the church, so our campuses are going to continue to sit under the same lead pastor teaching. And we're leveraging video streaming so that I can preach live to our church as we gather in two locations. And my family's at Providence Road, so that's where I usually am, but that other 60 per, uh, 40% of the time, man, that's going to be our pastors and pastors in training here at Mercy. And by having two campuses, we get the chance to train up more pastors and more preachers, which helps us hear God's word from multiple voices, ensures we're not some one-man show. I mean, that's such a big deal, and it also helps us train future lead pastors. And I could keep going on how I think I'm so excited for the day ahead, but I've been talking about this long enough. All right, here's the deal. With all that said, we're trying this out. It's good for the church to be courageous and creative, to keep pushing the mission forward, but we also got to be humble. This is God's church. This is God's mission. And in his grace, he's allowed us to play a part of it. And so we're going to go as hard, as fast as we can, but we're doing it all submitted to him, and we'll see how it goes. All right? With that said, let's jump in. We are in the book of Matthew, and oh man, I've got... I have 20 pages worth of sermon notes that I'm not going to be able to share with you, so I'm going to try and lock this thing in. So much good that I'm excited to share with you. Uh, Verse 18 is where we're going to be. Don't worry, in my notebook, I only have eight of those pages, okay? Um, But we are over in verse 18, the story of the coming of Christ. It is an incredibly powerful story drenched in hope. In fact, the whole theme around Advent this year is a thrill of hope. It comes from the line in the song, O Holy Night. One of my favorite Christmas hymns because it's very powerful in its arrangement, but also so rich in its theology. And there's a line in there that says, the thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices, for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. The weary world. I was thinking about it this year because I feel like, I don't know, maybe maybe you can resonate with this. When I ask people, how are you doing? 
the most common, once we get past the Southern hospitality, like, oh, I'm fine, you're fine, I'm fine. Once we get past that and we get real with each other, um, the most common response I hear is, I'm tired. I'm tired. But it's not like good tired, like I just had a great workout tired, not that. I'm talking about soul tired. Like the normal day makes your shoulders slump. You feel like you got to power through, you know, but you know, even if you do make it to the end of the day and you go to sleep, tomorrow's coming, right? It's a weariness. And the hope of Christmas is it's not just another day coming, but a new day, a new and glorious day, one we can rejoice in, one that actually allows you the possibility of hoping in something again. Because hope's kind of tricky. Like if we let ourselves hope, then it's thrilling, but let's be honest, some of y'all have been burned by hope. You're disappointed now, right? You've been waiting for healing. You've been waiting for marriage. You've been waiting for a child, waiting for a job. You've been, disappoint- you've been disappointed, and now it feels like the only thing you're actually waiting for is more disappointment. You don't want to hope, because hope disappointed is more painful than never hoping, You never hope, you never get disappointed. And to that weary soul comes this announcement of a new and glorious morn. Christ bursts through the darkness of sin, carrying with him adoption papers saying you have a father who has actually won victory over your sin and over your suffering, and he has made an eternal home for you with him. No more weariness. And my hope that I will be with him in that day gives me hope that he's with me in this day. His power to defeat sin, his strength to carry me in suffering. Y'all, that's the hope that unlocks the power of God in our lives. There's this pastor out in uh, Nashville. He just retired recently. His name's Ray Ortland, and he used to open um, every service at his church, Emmanuel Nashville, uh, by talking about how the church is the place where as you come through the doors of the church, You don't come through and into the presence of the body of Christ and into the gathering of the saints. You don't come on your own strength. You come and you gather and you identify as Christians actually in your weakness and because of Christ's strength. And so he used to say to all who are weary, welcome. Here is where you find rest. Sitting under the word of God, being reminded of who you are in Christ. So Mercy Church, as we gather for Advent, welcome, (laughs) welcome. So glad that you're here with us. This is what we're making our home in. Verse 18, the birth of Jesus Christ came about this way. After his mother Mary had been engaged to Joseph, it was discovered before they came together that she was pregnant from the Holy Spirit. All right. After 17 verses of genealogies, our author Matthew is now ready to talk about the arrival of Jesus. Last week, Joseph Anderson did a great job preaching through the genealogy of Jesus, a passage that at first can look like a boring roll call, but the more you study it, the more you realize it's this quick, incredibly rich summary of thousands of years of the faithfulness of God. And that's big coming into today. You need to have the proven faithfulness of God, that incredible track record, fresh on your mind as you read verse 18. Because verse 18, y'all, is very, that's a very bizarre sentence that I just read to you. You go back and you read it again. God dramatically interrupts Joseph's life. That's what, I, not Joseph Anderson. I'm sure he's done that to Joseph Anderson too. I'm talking about Joseph, you know, husband of Mary, that, that whole thing, okay? We're, we're with that Joseph now. 
He dramatically interrupts his life. In fact, the title of today's sermon, when God interrupts your life, what you gonna do? When God interrupts your life. I, you know, I preached this text, I was going back through just previous years in Advent, and I preached this text with that sermon title in December of 2019. So I'm intentionally bringing the same thing back today because three months after I preached it, God interrupted all of our lives. I want to see if we've learned anything from the Lord's interruption. I know I have, man. So the sermon title is the same, but this message has been refined by the fires of the past two years. So Matthew says, okay, this is how the Savior of the world came. His mom is engaged to his dad. Everything's well and good. So far, you know, Joseph's this young aspiring carpenter, going to have his own business and family one day. He's from the line of David, which is a big deal for his people. It's name recognition like Kennedy or Kardashian, all right? Like everybody knows who they are. An engagement, now he had found a good girl from a good family, he put a ring on it, they're engaged, and engagement was a way in their day, way more official than what it is in our day. It was called the betrothal period where you were in effect married. All right, verse 19, he's going to refer to uh, Joseph as Mary's husband. Their lives have been joined together socially, financially. The last step would be joined together physically after marriage. This engagement was so official that to break it off, you'd have to go through divorce proceedings. Well, before it was possible for Mary to be pregnant, it was discovered that she was pregnant. Man, Matthew just left a lot out in those little words right there. It was discovered that she was pregnant. So immediately, all the people who discovered this pregnancy would assume something's going wrong. Mary and Joseph are supposed to be virgins, right? A virgin can't be pregnant. So somebody must have violated God's command not to have sex outside of marriage. That's a big deal. And then Matthew adds it was discovered she was pregnant by the Holy Spirit. What? Verse 19, so her husband Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. Joseph assessed the situation, decided that his fiance being pregnant, his, this kid not being his, not something he's trying to get into. All right, well, I was talking about this around the, I often do this with my family around the dinner table and I was telling them what we're preaching about and my nine-year-old daughter goes, man, Joseph must have been like, sheesh, when he heard that. <laughs> I was, How are you doing this? You're nine. Who are you? Um, <laughs> but here's Joseph, clearly at this time, not convinced that this was from the Holy Spirit, which, y'all, makes a little bit of sense when you think about it, that he wouldn't be convinced about this, right? I mean, you just think about it. The last account of God doing anything among his people was 400 years prior to this moment. And what he did was scatter his people everywhere because of, all across the Mediterranean because of their disobedience to him. They'd been oppressed by the Persian Empire. Most of their land had been taken away. They got Jerusalem and a couple other spots left. That was 400 years before this. And for context, America is like 250 years old, all right? Like it's way longer. Think of how many generations had felt silence from God. And I say that to help you zoom out a little bit from your moment. Maybe you've been waiting on God. You need to know that God can keep his promises without keeping your timeline. All right? He can, and he loves to. And you might be saying, you might, your prayers might be, have, have been every day this past week, God, I need this, I need this. God, this guy is the one. I need him to propose. And God is like, girl, no. Okay, he's not, and you can't see it, but he's not. And now Mary, Joseph's looking at Mary and saying, okay, Mary, wait a minute. After 400 years, God has finally done something. He's finally moved. 
and this is what he did? He made you pregnant. That's his move. Joseph doesn't believe it, but he doesn't want to embarrass her because, y'all, there's another side to Joseph's heart here. He's got to be devastated and disappointed, right? This is his future wife. This is someone he loves. He's seeing his future crumble. Talk about hope disappointed. Think about the life he had planned, and God is interrupting it. He knows that her embarrassment's gonna come later, so he decides to divorce her secretly. You actually gotta know that's Joseph walking in the wisdom of the day. He's, at, he's trying to honor God right there. This is him being a righteous man of faith according to everything he knows, but God is interrupting. Verse 20, after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. Oh man. Y'all, the other side of when God interrupts your life is that, those three words, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife because what has been conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. In this dream, the angel is now confirming Mary's story to Joseph. And he uses, look at this, Joseph, son of David. He uses Joseph's lineage to remind Joseph that something bigger than Joseph's little life is going on here. This, Joseph, is about me and my plan for my people. So I need you to remember right now, Joseph, you're a son of David. God has always been with sons of David, and he will be with you. So I'm going to tell you, Joseph, the same thing I've been telling your bloodline time and time again. Don't be afraid. I know I'm interrupting your life, but I'm doing something bigger than just you. you got to trust me. I told Abraham, don't be afraid. You're going to have a child. And he laughed. But then... He saw me provide, and he trusted. I told Isaac, don't flee to Egypt when there's the famine and the drought. I'll provide water for you. And Isaac gets scared, but he trusts, and then God provides. I told Jacob, I'll never leave you. I even wrestled with him once, and like a good dad, I let him think that he won for a minute, right? But then I told him, don't be afraid of your older brother. I'm doing something. Son of David, I'm doing something. Don't be afraid. My promises are the most certain thing in the world. And I draw this out here, guys, to remind you, sons and daughters of Christ, you can trust him. And if you feel silent right now, don't be afraid. If he has interrupted your life, honestly, you being in church today might be an interruption. Like your friend told you to come, and so you did. And maybe today he's interrupting your life, and it starts with just, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid he's doing something. Verse 21. She will give birth to a son, and you're to name him Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. In fact, Joseph, <laughs> you don't have to worry about coming up with a name. No baby books for this one, okay? Nothing. <laughs> I'm already going to tell you who he is. He's Jesus. That's the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which means God saves. This will be the one that saves his people. Not saves them from some nation state that might attack or something like that. No, he'll save them from something far more important and more significant and with the eternal implications. He'll save them from their sins. In other words, Joseph, he's the one. He's the one who will once and for all reconcile God's people back to himself. And then our author Matthew hits the pause button. And he hits the pause button to provide a little authorial aside to help us understand why this story matters so much. And this is big. 
if you've been in church a little while, you've been in church for a few years, Christmas has been kind of a tradition sort of thing, I especially want you to lock in here because we can just let Christmas roll by as a tradition and miss the significance of it. Verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant and give birth to a son and they will name him Emmanuel, which is translated, God is with us. Matthew's quoting Isaiah right there. He repeats Isaiah saying, the virgin's gonna give birth to a son and he'll be called Emmanuel, God with us. What he's doing there, he's not like giving us Jesus's middle name or something. He didn't have a birth announcement that says, welcome to the world, Jesus, Emmanuel, Christ. Like that's not what's going on here. Jesus was his first, first name, but both Emmanuel and Christ, these are titles explaining who he is. In this case, Emmanuel, God with us, is telling us about his very nature. Y'all, Matthew is trying to open our eyes to a staggering claim that has been absolutely central to the Christian faith since the day that this was announced. There is a holy divine mystery being put into words right here, and you gotta see it. I wanna try and show you what Matthew wants to see about who Jesus is here in these two things where he pauses, I want us to pause, and then we'll finish the narrative. And like I said, I'm so concerned that churchgoers, familiar churchgoers might miss this. There's a chance you have passively just accepted who Jesus is instead of actively considering it. And a passive go through the motions faith, I don't know how else to say it, it's almost like it's like a twig-like faith. The strength of a twig, you can't build a house on it, all right? And what you need and what God offers you in scripture is four by four kind of faith, right? That you can build a big house of faith on. And y'all, I just see people, the winds of the day come, somebody comes along and gives you two little quick reasonings about why Christianity must not be real. And there, there are plenty of easy answers from scripture for you, but because you've only ever built your faith on twig-like faith, boom, you get knocked down and you are deconstructing now and running away from the Lord. And I'm just telling you that there are answers in God's word and there's rich, firm foundation that you can stand on. And that's what he's doing here. The first thing I want you to see, we'll give you three out of this little verse 22 and 23. It's almost like a sermon within a sermon moment. He's saying Jesus is fully human. He's fully human. That's big. You've got to see him as human. Luke 2 says he grew in wisdom. Mentally, he learned just like a child learns. He's, this is not like an eight-month-old walking around, right, saying substitutionary atonement like boss baby or something like that. You know what I mean? <laughs> like he grew up. According to Philippians 2, he chose to empty himself, set some things aside and grow up. And the reason it matters is because his purpose that's why it matters, because of his purpose. His purpose was to be a substitution for us. I think about my kids are playing basketball, my two older, uh, my two sons are playing basketball right now, and the only people that can sub in for players on the court are players on the bench. Only guys on the team can go into the game. Like, your family dog that you brought into the gym can't run in and sub in for a player and get to play, right? Nor can any sibling who's like, oh, that'd be cute if they played. No, no, no. Only people on the team can play. Jesus becomes, if the metaphor feels cheesy, I just hope that it's clear and understandable, Jesus becomes a member of the team so that he can sub in for us. But instead of a game, he actually substituted himself in in the courtroom. 
as one who takes our punishment for us. That's why he had to be human. But Matthew said he wants to see something else too. He says the son, that's the human, will be called God with us. He's fully human, but he's fully God too. He has the power to cure diseases. He has command over nature, even power over death. And y'all, to understand that, you gotta remember if he's God with us, then the Jesus of Matthew 1 is also the Jesus of Genesis 1. Right, the God of Genesis 1. And if we will get, this is why Christianity and, and accepting Christianity is true hangs right here. Because then everything else Jesus does, you can start to accept it. For example, you can believe he walked on water if he created water. If he created water, it's not hard to believe. You can believe that he fed 5,000 people with five loaves and two fishes if he created stomachs. He can do it. Right here at this point in the gospel, this is where you decide yes or no to Christianity. Christmas isn't about trying to wake us up to this, not about some quaint tradition with some religious sprinkles on top. It's about God breaking into human existence on a rescue mission to save his people from their sin. That's Christmas. He had to be, he had to be fully God because only God is perfect. If he was only human, he would have been a sinner just like us. And a sinner can't sacrifice for another sinner because the sinner has to die for his or her own sins. Think about that courtroom. If the sentence is death, he can't come and pay for my sin if he has a death sentence. But he doesn't because he's perfect. He is guilt-free. And he steps in and he says not only is he going to pay for my sins, but because he is fully God and not just one human, he has the ability infinitely to pay for all sins of all time. What a gift. What a gift. There's the last thing I think Matthew is really driving home. Jesus is God's promise fulfilled. He keeps his promises. That's why Matthew quotes so many prophecies. Each time he does, he's saying, this is the Christ. This is the anointed one. Matthew's whole gospel is a giant announcement that Jesus is the one history has been waiting on. He's the child of Eve who would crush the serpent's head. He's the offspring of Abraham and Isaac that will be a blessing to the whole world. Jesus is Abraham's lamb of God offered as a sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus is Jacob's ladder making a way for us to ascend into heaven to be with the Father. Jesus is the I am Moses met at the burning bush. Jesus is the final Passover lamb sacrificed to protect God's people from death. Jesus is Moses' bronze serpent lifted up on the pole so that all who look at him will be spared from death because of their rebellion that what it earned them. He's the commander of the Lord's army that Joshua followed into the battle of Jericho. Jesus is the king God promised would sit on David's throne forever. Jesus is the true Samson who had strength and was betrayed by his people, yet his story ends not in climactic death, but in glorious resurrection. Yeah. I'm not done, I just need to breathe. Y'all, he is the faithful one that the psalmist said would not stay in the grave. He's the one, Psalm 22, forsaken by God for the sins of others who cried out, it is finished. 
He's the one the psalmist said was sitting at the right hand of the Father. He is Isaiah's Emmanuel, Isaiah's wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. He's Isaiah's suffering servant, despised and rejected, yet by his stripes we are healed. He's Jeremiah and Ezekiel's descendant of David. He's Daniel's fourth person in the furnace, whose presence ensures that his people will not be consumed by the flames of the enemy. He's Daniel's Messiah that'll die for the sins of the world. He's Hosea's called out son of Egypt. He's the true Jonah who went into the grave and came out after three days. He's Micah's ruler born in Bethlehem, Haggai's son of Zerubbabel, Zechariah's just and humble Messiah riding into Jerusalem on a donkey who would be rejected by 30 pieces of silver and he's Malachi's messenger of the new covenant. He's the one and only God, man, savior, king, promised by God, and Matthew is telling you and I, open your eyes, open your heart, and worship, worship. That's why we celebrate Advent every year, to slow down and marvel, because yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. So fall, fall on your knees, hear the angels' voices, because it is, oh, night divine that Christ was born. And God's doing all this telling Joseph, I know this wasn't your plan, but son, it has been my plan for thousands of years. So you gotta trust me. And how did he respond? Verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did as the Lord's angel had commanded him. He married her but he did not have sexual relations with her until she gave birth to a son, and he named him Jesus. Simply put, he chose to trust the Lord's plan over his own. When life was interrupted in a big way, Joseph was able to look back at God's track record, and he trusted God's word to him. He chose to trust God even though it meant, it would mean being misunderstood by his family and friends. He even went above and beyond what God told him to do to ensure there was no question that she was, in fact, a virgin. Some of the greatest moments in Scripture, y'all, they begin when God interrupts people's lives. God comes to Moses, go get my people. Comes to Samuel, go anoint that shepherd boy, David. Comes to Abraham, sacrifice your son on the altar. (sighs) Jonah, go to Nineveh. Mary, you're going to give birth to a son. Wise men, go to Bethlehem. Peter, follow me. Saul, stop persecuting me. Preach my gospel. Each of these occasions, and so many more, y'all, they weren't expecting it. They weren't expecting God's interruption, but they leaned in and trusted God at his word, and he did far greater things in them and through them than they could have ever possibly imagined would happen. God interrupted their lives, and he interrupts ours too. Here's what I want you to see. From Joseph's perspective on the birth of Jesus, as you marvel at God's faithfulness in the arrival of Christ, will you trust him? Will you trust him as your life gets interrupted? Maybe again, even interrupting you this morning. There's a crazy thing to me about this song, O Holy Night. It was written in southern France in 1843 by a uh, poet. The lyrics were written by a poet who wasn't a Christian. Local priest, Invites this guy in, you know, he's trying to engage the art scene with the gospel in his day. Invites this guy and says, hey, will you help me write a Christmas hymn, a new one that we can sing together. Takes him through the Bible story, clearly hoping this guy and stepping into the Advent season with him would finally see Jesus for who he really is. What a wonderful interruption God brought into this poet's life. And yet, there's no record this guy made a decision to follow Christ. 
despite learning everything and even being able to spit it out in a beautiful and poetic way, his heart was never changed. Despite head knowledge, he lacked a changed heart. Don't leave here with some information today. Don't leave Christmas with some head knowledge only. God is after your heart. And he offers you forgiveness and new life, joy in this life that the one who kept all those promises still keeps his promises. He is with you now. He has eternity set for you. He gives you victory over sin as you fight it. Don't go through Christmas and miss Jesus. Don't miss him, church. Let me pray for you. Father, thank you. Thank you for the testimony, I don't know what else to call it, the testimony of scripture, where we see your faithfulness to your word. And in that, we see your faithfulness to us. Thank you, Father. God, I pray as we continue to worship this morning, and as we walk out today, would we be overwhelmed, filled with joy, (laughs) because you are faithful. You have forgiven us of our sins in Christ. Our life is yours. Would our response be, Lord, here's my life. You will lead it far better than I ever could. Give us that wholesale response today, Father, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.